0: You can have a seat if you want to open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, we'll be looking at verse 19 through 23 this morning. Oh, you've probably heard this joke, but you know, and my kids always get on to me when I tell jokes from the pulpit because they always say they're terrible, but you've probably heard the joke about the woman who goes to the doctor and she says to the doctor, doctor, I just look terrible. I my eyes are, I've got bags under my eyes, and my hair is thinning, and my complexion is super pale, and I've got this acne all over my face, and the doctor responds, well, the good news is, is that your eyesight's working fine. (laughs) I kind of knew who would laugh at that already. It's pretty cringy. Today in our text, we're going to see a bad news, good news scenario, which is very common in God's word. It's very common in the gospel to see a bad news, good news kind of proposition put before us. So if you look in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14, verse 19, we see, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds and having persuaded the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the text that will, the piece of the text that we'll focus on this morning is verse 22, and specifically the phrase that Paul uses when he says that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And that little sliver of information contains bad news. Persecution. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And within the context of this passage, we can see that he's referring to, in particular, the tribulations that come through persecution. In fact, the word for tribulation just means pressure. And that's what we see in this passage. So the bad news, persecution. The good news, paradise. Bad news, persecution. The good news, paradise. Through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. We get to go to paradise if we worship Jesus. But if we worship Jesus, whom the world hates, we will be persecuted. The two go hand in hand. In fact, in the book of Revelation early on, John, the apostle, writes, I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus, who share with you in Jesus, the persecution and the kingdom." These two things, the good news, the bad news, persecution and paradise, they go together. And God is really insistent throughout his word to tell us in advance of both of these things. He keeps issuing promises of paradise, and he keeps issuing warnings related to persecution. And kind of the question is, like, well, I think I understand why he keeps uh, issuing promises of paradise, but why is... The Bible is so filled, especially the New Testament. Why is the Bible so filled with warnings about persecution? Well, I think it's because when something bad hits you that you didn't didn't foresee, when something bad surprises you, it has far more potential to shake you up. Right? So imagine not knowing what football is. Imagine not knowing what high school football is. Just imagine being a 15-year-old boy. Freshman, don't really know much about football, don't really know much about high school football, and you show up the first day for tryouts, and they hand you all this gear, and you're like, well, this is kind of odd, but okay. Um, you put the gear on, and and then you stand with a bunch of other guys, and this coach is just like out of nowhere like a Nazi. Like just, you know, like you don't even know this guy and he's yelling at you and and then he starts running you through drills and and you're, you're seeing lights because you're getting hit over and over and over again. And at the end of that practice, you're like, I mean, I don't know what this, I don't know what kind of sadomasochistic thing this is. I want nothing to do with it. I don't understand. Like what in the world? What are these people about? But if you know about football, you know about high school football, you show up and that's just part of the process. So knowing about a difficulty in advance and knowing why the difficulty is a part of my experience keeps me from being shaken by it, helps me to press through it. But when difficulties come, which we did not foresee, which we do not understand, which we don't know why they exist, why they've come or for what purpose they serve, these are the ones that shake us. So over and over again in God's word, we're warned about persecution. Second Timothy three twelve, for instance, Paul says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now sometimes that verse, I think I've done this, sometimes that verse gets shortened. All who desire a god all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. That's not true. There are lots of people who desire who, who try to live a morally upright life. It's not It's not the morality that brings persecution. It's the identity with Jesus Christ. It's all those who try to live or aspire to or desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then, of course, in John chapter 15 and 16, Jesus repeats time and time again that we will be persecuted. One sample I just almost randomly pulled out of that section of Scripture is, uh, John 16, 33, where Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So this text that we're looking at today, Acts 14, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's the bad news, persecution. The good news, Paradise, and these two things interplay. But today, I I believe, I think I've identified the purpose of the text. I think that you could look at this text and see that in two ways, Luke has shown the reality of persecution. He's told the story of Paul's own persecution. He's told the story, it's a narrative of Paul being persecuted, of Paul being stoned. But then he gives us an insight into this little brief moment in which Paul preaches to the churches And one of the messages that Luke picks out of the things that Paul is teaching is that Paul told the churches, through many many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So I think Luke is showing us and telling us that persecution is a part of life. I think the purpose of this passage is to warn us in advance. So picking that purpose up pastorally, thinking how do I help people in this regard, how do I help people with the aim of this particular text? I want to talk today about how to respond to persecution when others, not us, are bearing the brunt of the persecution. Okay, so I want to talk about how to, how to respond to persecution when we are receiving the light end of it. And someone else is receiving the heavy end of it. And that is actually in our text. Acts 14 again, 19 through 20. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. So that's Paul and he's getting, what would you say, 99% of the persecution? But look what it says next. But when the disciples gathered about him, He rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. So there are two different kinds of experiences of persecution in this passage. The one is the one that we all think of. Right? Being stoned, being burned at the stake or something. But there's this second category, and this is the category almost all of you will almost exclusively experience. This is the main category of persecution for the majority of Christians, not only in the world today, but throughout history. So you have to understand that persecution is not evenly distributed because our, our roles in ministry, our roles in the church are not evenly distributed. There is in every war a front line and a back line. There are front line soldiers and there are back line soldiers who cook and are surgeons and, and mechanics and so forth. And in any war, the fire is not even across the front lines, let alone backward into the rear guard. So in every single experience of persecution the church has ever gone through, it's been unevenly distributed. You can think of it this way. Um, For every Christian who went to die in the Colosseum, there were thousands who did not. And for every Christian who wound up on Nero's stake, there were thousands who were not. And for every Stephen or Paul who was stoned, there were thousands who were not. So persecution is not evenly distributed across the church anymore than enemy fire is evenly distributed across an army. And so in many respects, the majority of the church throughout all of history experiences this secondary form of persecution. And the real test for most Christians throughout most ages is not will you get up after you've been stoned, but will you stand by the one who has been stoned? That's the real test for most Christians of most times, in most places. The majority of us, not only now, but throughout history, the real test isn't will we stand up after we've been stoned? Most of us will not be. The real test is will we stand with those are experiencing the brunt of the persecution in any given moment? Now, the answer to that is maybe not. And this is important that we are humble and that we understand our our own capacities, both for good and for evil. It's important that we understand that we might have heroic notions of ourselves in these desperate times but that does not mean a whole lot when we examine the realities in Scripture. Unfortunately, one response to seeing someone being persecuted in a very heavy way is to abandon them. And this is, the Bible shows us this, right? You know, one of the saddest sections of Scripture, I was talking to somebody else about this. We both almost said that when we read this chapter, our eyes start to water a little bit. Chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, Paul is already being poured out like a drink offering, he says. and He's detailing his situation. And he says in verse 10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And then in verse 16, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, But all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. And then, of course, we have the case of Peter, who, after swearing to Jesus an allegiance unto death, denies him three times and abandons him to the cross. In fact, Jesus says that when you strike the shepherd, the sheep will flee. And he said that all of them, all of them would, in one way or another, abandon him at the cross. How will we respond when someone is selected by God to be the primary bearer of persecutions, wounds in a particular moment? And we are there in the sidelines. We are there in the crowd. We are are there watching. How will we respond? Well, one way we can respond is through abandonment. And we have a very real capacity to do that. And one of the things I saw as I studied those texts is that in each one of those instances, the reality of the abandoner's salvation is called into question. And you know, when Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me three times, he says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Like, there's this, this moment of like, if you walk away, there's a chance you're not his. And then, of course, when Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, that at my trial, none stood with me. He says, may it not be counted against them because that would mean something terrible for them. So this possibility of abandoning people at their most miserable moment, at their most needy moment, that's there, guys. That, that exists. But there's another possibility, and that is, is instead of abandoning people in those moments, we'll act out of the affection of Christ. It's not the only, abandonment's not the only way the story can go, and our text today shows us that. These folks came and stood by and identified with a man who others thought was dead as the result of persecution. They stood by him. They surrounded him, the text says. You know, this is part of the blessing of the Christian life. Proverbs 18.24 says, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So we can see this exact kind of thing in the book of Hebrews. You know, the the audience, uh, the people who received the letter of Hebrews were kind of chided in the letter for being immature. And I guess theologically they were kind of immature. But one thing they got right was when others in their community were persecuted in that sort of disproportionate way that we've been describing, they stood by them. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. I've got it up on the screen here, I believe. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. What seems to be happening here is is that by... By going to those who had been imprisoned for the gospel, they had themselves been identified publicly as sympathizers of the gospel. And and taking the step to go into prison and and bring these folks food and clothing, that was not provided in ancient prisons, uh, to bring these folks these things, to visit them, that was an indication of allegiance to the same sect as the Romans and Jews sought. So they, in identifying with those in prison, also wound up being targeted themselves. Of course, that's why we would abandon these folks. That's why we would abandon them, right? Because we know that, that there's this nasty thing in especially dark and evil societies called guilt by association. And when that's howling about like the demonic spirit that it is, we all understand that to associate with someone who's already been singled out to be persecuted is to set ourselves up for persecution. But we don't have to abandon people. There's lots of instances where people stood by, including these folks in the book of Hebrews. You know, another way to think about all this, I don't know about you, but um, you look at all these passages where persecution is predicted for the Christian, including the passage in 2 Timothy where Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or this passage that we've seen today in Acts 14, 22, through many trials, we, I think that's all of us, must enter the kingdom of God. And I don't know if you've ever thought this, but you've thought, well, am I a Christian? Because I don't think I'm being persecuted. Well, one explanation for not being persecuted is that indeed you are not a Christian. But you know, there's another explanation as well. And that is this thing that I'm just calling vicarious persecution. See, the Bible speaks of a love for others that is so deep that when they are being persecuted, I feel persecuted as well. When someone is suffering, I am suffering. When someone is struggling, I am struggling. And we see this sort of identifiable, vicarious love in Jesus as he confronts Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul was breathing out, the text says, murderous threats against the church. And Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus. And what does he say? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So it's actually possible, and if you have kids, you know this, It's actually possible to love someone so much that if you were to harm them, it's it's like they're harming you. And one of the things I want to postulate this morning is is that that was the reality at at a basic love level in the early church. People loved each other that much. That they themselves, so I think one of the things Paul's saying in Acts 14.22 is, I know it's trying for you to see me go through trials. In fact, in Ephesians 3, he says, hey, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering. So the expectation of a local body of believers is that, yeah, we're not all going to experience the same level of persecution, but man, there ought to be a way, a sense in which when one of us does, it feels like persecution to me because that's my person. I love that person and what you do to them feels like you're doing it to me. Paul, you know, what a loving man. He gets literally, he almost picture him getting scraped up off the sidewalk outside of this city, you know, and then he goes right away, compelled by the love for others, compelled by the love for Christ to preach the gospel of the kingdom to other cities. But then, you know, he's probably still got some bruises all over him actually. And, uh, He circles back to all these churches who who saw him being stoned and he wants to bring them comfort and say, you know, don't freak out by this. This is just a part of what it means to enter the kingdom of God. So there's the two kind of divergent paths for how we could respond when we see someone else being persecuted. And to be honest, I think I think the one ought to excite us and and cause us to to say, Lord, let me be that person. Let me be this, like the people in the the book of Hebrews. Let me stand with those who have fallen. But there's the other possibility too, right? That in the heat of the moment, we run. Like Demas or like Peter. Well, I think I've got some truth that could maybe help us pass the test. Because all persecution is a test. And the test that we're talking about today is the one about, like, where are we in relationship to the people who are really, really getting it? So I think I've got three things that may help you to pass the test. And the first one is, I think we need to have a healthy respect for the power of social pressure. I don't believe that we understand just how impactful social pressure is and what it can do to us. I believe that, in fact, that was Peter's blind spot. When he swore dying allegiance to Jesus, um, I don't think he understood the power of the mob and the power that the mob would have on him. You know, in the last two or three years I, I get to talk to lots of interesting people and many people just in divergent walks who don't really have anything to do with each other, but people who are intelligent, who have who are attempting to understand things. I have heard from many people that they have dusted off two old books and read a third, more recent book in the last two years. And none of these books are written uh, as explicitly Christian books, but one of them was written in 1841 by a man named Charles McKay, and it's called Extraordinary Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. And then one is written uh, a little bit later, in 1895, by Gustave Le Bon, and it's called The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind. And a third book, a recent book, written by British journalist Douglas Murray, is called the madness of crowds and these three books all deal with this thing that we see in our text today in fact these three books deal with the same thing we've seen over the last two chapters of acts in acts 13 50 the text says the jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city it Acts 14.2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. In Acts 14.19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and persuaded the crowds. So in each one of these instances, we see this sort of mob incitement occurring. We see a group of people worked up through lies into a frenzy, into taking violent action against a godly ban. And these three books that I referenced are all kind of dealing with that same idea. McKay, for instance, has said it this way. Men, it has been well said, think in herds, and it will be seen that they go mad in herds, while they only recover their senses slowly, one by one. Laban writes, The psychological crowd is a provisional being, formed of heterogeneous elements, which for a moment are combined. He's essentially saying that a mob becomes its own living entity. What Once were individuals, now become part of some collective living thing that isn't human but is quite dangerous. And that makes me think of the quote in The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis where he says, where Beaver, Mr. Beaver says, if you ever see anything that was human but isn't anymore keep your eye on it and hold your hatchet mobs are in some ways surrendering autonomy for the for the benefit of losing responsibility responsibility to think responsibility for their actions and no i guarantee you the mobs are not restricted to one zip code or one part of this or any other city. They're everywhere. And Laban writes, The masses have never thirsted after truth. They turn aside from evidence that is not to their taste, preferring to deify error if error seduces them. Whoever can supply them with illusions is easily their master. Whoever attempts to destroy their illusions is always their victim. And indeed, the madness of crowds is in full effect, not only in these chapters in Acts, but also in the crucifixion of Jesus, where we see the chief priests did what? They stirred up the crowds. They stirred up the crowds for an illogical bloodlust against Jesus and an illogical graciousness towards Barabbas. So that when Pilate goes to the crowds, as was the custom, and says, Who shall I release? The crowds were no longer a thinking group of individuals. They were a bloodlusting entity all in its own self. And I think that if we know this in advance, because that's the whole idea of warning, right? Is to know something in advance so it does not shake us. If we know the power of the mob in advance, we may be able to stand against it. I think there are spiritual and even sociological reasons why Peter, who had mighty resolve, crumbled under the power of the mob. So practically, what does this look like? Well, I think just understanding what a mob is and how it can quickly come into being. And how, to be honest, it's the kind of temptation you don't want to find yourself in. Because it's not the kind of temptation you can easily step aside from. The, the, the stories from history are too deep of evidence that show it is not easy to not get swept up in a mob. Don't think too highly of yourself. Right? Uh, it's, it's, it's more of a temptation than you might realize. And where is the temptation most evident today? Well... You know, I think of social media as like a big town square with hundreds or thousands of people, depending on how popular you are, uh, hundreds or thousands of people congregated in this, this, this square, right? And on, there's, there's a switch, and, and you don't know when the switch is going to flip, but there's this switch that gets flipped. So there's two modes for all of these people in your little town square that are wandering around, and the first mode is Recreation. People are posting pictures of vacation and their kids and Christmas and the house that they just bought, the fish they just caught, and so forth. And then something happens in the culture, and the switch is flown, flipped, and they go from recreation to reaction. And it's a mob. It just is. And no matter how you think you can insert yourself in that particular moment, man, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. At least... Partially, you ought not be careful that that would be a source of temptation to you. So one thing I think we can do is to understand that the mob is quite powerful. Understand, the the, 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 have a healthy respect for social pressure. Number two, have a healthy respect for the power of slander. Have a healthy respect for the power of slander. In Matthew five ten through 11, this is really our first text, I suppose you could say, on persecution. I mean, it's our first teaching text. Herod had already shown persecution prior to this. But as we get into the New Testament, this is the first time we're taught about it. It's from Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount. And listen to how he describes persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. There's that connection between persecution and paradise again. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we must remember that Jesus has given us in advance one of the key ingredients to persecution. And one of them is lies. One of the basic strategies of persecution comes from the founder of it, and it is accusation and lies and slander. And guess what? This is a really complicated thing, because you can be sure that those on the front lines of the fight, we're not all on the front lines in the same way. You can be sure that those on the front lines are going to be persecuted more, And that one of the forms that persecution will take will be slander. Um, But on the other hand, here's the challenge. Some of the people on the front lines are more compromised than we realize. And they might have no business being on the front lines. And so now we're in this situation now, right now, where we don't know what to do with information about our leaders. On the one hand, it could be slander and persecution and on the other hand it could be truth. It's like how do I navigate that and how do I not wind up accidentally abandoning someone who has who is being persecuted, who is being slandered? It's like how do I deal with all that stuff? Well, here's some thoughts. On the one hand, it's appropriate for you, of course, not to want to have a hypocrite as a leader. And on the other hand, you have to realize that this could be a trap to make you a hypocrite. Someone who talks a lot about Christian love but then abandons someone the first time an unfavorable news article or blog is posted about them. So I think it would be important. Is to I think we all have a relatively deeper sense of, of recoiling and reviling of our leaders being hypocrites. But I think we have a less acute and aware sense of our own selves being hypocrites, especially when it comes to the lack of loyalty and love for those who are being slandered. So I would say, okay, I don't want my leaders to be hypocrites. I also don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be tempted or tricked into turning my back on someone who deserves my loyalty and so forth. And, and the thing is, is that if you start there, you wind up at the next step. And that is, you will have to exercise a level of care and discernment and caution that the mob will simply not accept. When the mob is ready to persecute someone, you tapping the brakes because you'd like to have a bit more evidence is just not okay. As Gustave Le Bon said, the mob is a slave to those who feed their illusions And those who seek to break their illusions are its victim. So you have to understand that already, no matter how you respond, if you tap the brakes, some of the mob is already going to look over at you and say, I didn't even see you over there. You must be a co-conspirator. This is from Douglas Murray's book. One of the consequences... so, Friedrich Nietzsche is, is uh, someone we don't talk about a lot on, on Sunday morning, but it's I think this is a helpful thing to know about Friedrich Nietzsche. As one of the consequences of the death of God, so just to give you a refresher, Friedrich Nietzsche said, through a n- number of developments in society, we have killed God. We are, n- we are no longer, he, this is the guy who said, God is dead and we have killed him. He's essentially saying, we have embraced a secular explanation for everything and expunged God from everything, He was saying that, I think, partially with a, uh, like, that's good, but he was also extraordinarily concerned with how that could turn out. He did not think it would turn out well. So, Frederick Nietzsche foresaw that people could find themselves stuck in cycles of Christian theology with no way out. Specifically, that people would inherit the concepts of guilt, sin, and shame, but would be without the means of redemption from which the Christian religion also offered, which the Christian religion also offered. So he's predicting a future, a post-Christian future, when people still have Christian ideas, like don't be bad to weak people, don't lie. But they have all of the guilt associated with violating these commands that have been baked into our culture. But guess what they don't have anymore? They don't have a savior. They don't have a cross. They, they don't have a substitute. They don't have atonement. They don't have justification. They don't have forgiveness. And so this, this, this future reality that Nietzsche anticipated, as Douglas Murray argues, is here. Today we do seem to live in a world where actions can have consequences. We could never have imagined where guilt and shame are more at hand than ever and where we have no means whatsoever of redemption. This is the the difficulty of dealing with someone who is, well, there's two possibilities. They're receiving a lot of fire. Maybe it's because they've done something wrong. Or maybe it's because they're being persecuted. Or maybe it's a mixture of both. But what you must do in these moments is say, "Um, God has a jurisdiction for this, a due process for this. And no matter what it is, God has grace for this. And that's actually going to be one of it sounds like it's the easiest thing in the world for you to say but you just say it now because it doesn't cost you anything but being a hardcore grace person can cost you a lot in the right contexts and when someone is being beaten up maybe they deserve it a little bit maybe they don't well maybe they don't deserve it but they did something either way what you need to do is you need to say One way or another, whatever's going on, my job here is to walk with this person. Whether they're a liar and are repentant or whether they are being unfairly accused, whether they've sinned and are repentant or whether they're being unfairly accused, my job as a Christian is to help them repent and then forgive them and accept them in to my to my my circle. And this is what Paul commands in Romans 12, 16. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And that's really, when we're talking about persecution, we're talking about, and slander, we're talking about being that person who, if not publicly, at least privately, goes to the person who is enduring great slander and says, hey, one way or the other, I'm with you here. I want to walk with you. Um... Let me give you three principles related to this. Number one, God would rather you be in the dark than sit in the company of slanderers. God would rather you be in the dark than sit in the company of slanderers, meaning he would rather you not know things than to know things through slander. And that's not because he wants you to not know things, and that's not because I am some kind of patriarchal, Uh, guys, you know, I I didn't meet with anyone in a dark room last night and plan this to to protect both the patriarchy and the sham of Orthodox Christianity. No, the truth is, is that once you tune your ear to slander, it has more of a transformative effect on you than you could have ever anticipated. It's like the mob. We simply don't respect the power it has to change us. Here's the basic idea. If there is something about someone which needs to be revealed, God will fully reveal it in a way which is prescribed in his word. Number two. So number one, prefer to sit in the dark than to sit with slanders. Number two, make a commitment today to be a man or a woman of total mercy. Listen, every single fiber of my being, I'm telling you, There is just one way to live if you have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. If you have received mercy, you must be an instrument of mercy. And let me tell you another thing. If you withhold that, you will not. You will not experience God's blessings. God has absolutely no interest in in helping and walking with someone who had received his mercy who does not extend it. So let me just tell you point blank, there are lots of confusing and nuanced things in this world, but one of them is not, and that's like today, commit. I'm going to be a person of mercy, period, end of story. When something comes up to me and I have to choose, am I going to do this, am I going to do that? When I have to choose how am I going to talk about something, always ask yourself, is this what a person of mercy would do? And your life will be better because of that. This is just take it to the bank, absolute Be a man or woman of mercy. And what that's going to do for you is it's going to keep you from stoning sinners, which the Bible discourages. Jesus stood over the woman who had been caught committing adultery, but it's also going to keep you from accidentally stoning saints, which is unforgivable. It's unexcusable. It's evil. It's dark. It's gross. In McKay's work, he details a horrific event during the Crusades. A Christian army fought in this sort of mob-like fury with fanaticism, fully incited, he says. Men and women and children were indiscriminately slaughtered till the streets ran with blood. Darkness increased the destruction. For when morning dawned, the crusaders found themselves with their swords at the breasts of their fellow soldiers whom they had mistaken for their foes. And this is what we must avoid when persecution comes. This is what we must avoid when the mob runs hot. This is what we must avoid with slander. We must avoid this terrible, horrific moment when the lights come back on and we realize that my sword isn't in my enemy. It's in my friend and my brother and my sister. This is more important. Not doing that. This is the first, well, I think it's, I don't know how it's described exactly in military code, but, but this is essentially the prerogative of all tactical engagement. Don't shoot your friends. And if you cross that line, you're in heaps of trouble. But if you fail to engage the enemy properly because there was a risk of shooting your friends, they're like, no problem. Rule number one, don't shoot your friends. So how are we going to pass this test? How are we going to respond when someone else is stoned or, or singled out for persecution and we're kind of there and we have some choices that they don't even have and we could walk away or we can stay? How are we going to respond? Well, if we have any hope of sticking with them, we need to know, like, <laughs> you've got to really be on your mental toes in a mob. And number two, boy, you've got to really have some sense of what slander is and isn't and be able to slow down and just take some time and make sure that you don't accidentally run someone through with the sword who absolutely did not deserve it. And by the way, the best way to do that is just not to run people through with swords. So be a merciful person. Uh, third, Third thing, and this is the main thing, Read the verse again. Read Acts 14, 22 again. Put picture of them in a the room together. Paul's speaking to these disciples, brand new baby Christians. And he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I want you to understand something. Do you understand how glorious this kingdom must be for that statement to make any sense? Do you understand how glorious the kingdom of God must be for that statement not to provoke smirks on the faces of these new Christians who heard hear a man who had been stoned and left for dead saying, well, this is the way we get to the kingdom. And why not just say in response to that saying, well, I don't I don't know much about this kingdom, but I doubt it's worth stoning and nakedness and danger and terror and anxiety. It's like, this This must be one kind of one. This I think implied in this text is these people knew a lot about the kingdom, maybe more than we do. And they were able to say, this heaven thing, it's, man. So if you bought Bitcoin back in 2010, if you bought $1,000 of Bitcoin in 2010, you'd have like $234 million right now. And people that did that, because there were people that did that, are like, I can't believe I got away with that, right? 12 years, $1,000 to $234 million or something like that. And people are like, I can't believe I got away with that. Friends, every one of us, no matter how much we suffer in this world, will one day get to heaven and think, I cannot believe that that little thing I went through was a part of me getting all this. God is very stubborn when it comes to not owing anyone anything. He doesn't even want there to be an appearance of him being a debtor. And he's done all sorts of crazy things throughout history, including, like, weather events and the rise and fall of empires and all sorts of things. God's very focused on this idea. I don't want people to think that they owe me anything or that I owe them anything. So... In order for God to, to, to do that, in order for God to display that quality that He is very firmly focused on, He can't allow our transition from earth to heaven to be anything resembling a wage. Like it can't seem to God or to eternity that like we, we paid our dues here and, and then in heaven we get our paycheck that God would not, he's not down with that sort of idea. It's like, it, of course, why would he? Like, that's just nonsense, first of all, but also, like, what does God do because of this concern he has about not appearing to be a debtor to anyone? God loves grace, right? Like, this is his boast. He has to make things turn out in a way where even the person, I mean, I, we could probably find the person who has suffered the most besides Jesus, as a Christian. God has to make it work out where all of that suffering that they experienced turns out to look to them and to the universe, to the cosmos, as like like a nothing burger. God doesn't want some saint to graduate from a hard life on earth and enter a heaven that is roughly correspondent in reverse proportion to the suffering they experienced. that's That's not God's plan at all. God's plan is to blow you away with grace in every fiber of your being for all time. So, in order for that to work out, the glory of the kingdom has to make the shame of persecution seem light, right? He has to make the weight of the kingdom make the heaviness of pressure of tribulation seem momentary. He, he has to make, in a way that only he can, the beauties and glories and profound bliss of eternity to be this massive, disproportionate response. So that we look back, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, and say, well, that was light and momentary plan is, is for us one day to say something like this. I planted this tiny little seed of suffering in faith that you gave me, by the way, God. And now I'm standing in a forest of pleasure and joy that I can't actually ever find the end of and that bears unlimited fruit of joy forever. It was all because of this, I mean, this is about the only thing I did. This, this little bit of suffering. And I now live in an unbelievable orchard of glory. So when Paul says, by many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, nobody smirked and said, pass, pass. Because they knew that the two went hand in hand. Their real concern and this, your real concern. Why am I being a good person? Is it because it pays off in some ways here? Or is it because I love Jesus? Persecution, remember, as we said at the beginning, is proof. It's evidence. That the world sees Christ. And the world tries to play whack-a-mole wherever Jesus pops up. And if he's popped up in someone's life, we can be assured. This is what Paul's saying in 2 Timothy. We can be assured that when he pops up in someone's life, the world will respond with persecution. So these folks didn't say, well, this just sounds like a rotten deal. Many tribulations for the kingdom of God. Like, what's the kingdom of God? Why is that worth anything? They said they knew the kingdom. They said, These persecutions are actually showing me I'm on the right track. So final thing for me, your ability to endure tribulations is tied up directly to your ability to properly imagine heaven. I am deeply worried that we are losing respect for people with imaginations or failing to encourage our kids to have Proper imaginations, but friends, imaginations are very crucial to our spiritual survival. You need to be able, in dark times, to think, what will this eternal joy look like? And thankfully, some of the people who have good imaginations write books, and one of them is a man named Randy Alcorn, and he's written a book called, well, he's written lots of books on heaven, but I'll just close with this. He writes, close your eyes and envision the most beautiful place you've ever seen, complete with palm trees, raging rivers, jagged mountains, waterfalls, snowdrifts. drifts. Thank of friends or family members who love Jesus and are with him now. Picture them with you, talking, walking together in this place. All of you have powerful bodies, stronger than those of Olympic decathletes. You are laughing playing, talking, and reminiscing. And you reach up to a tree and pick an apple or an orange, and you take a bite, and it's so sweet that it's startling. You've never tasted anything so good. Now you see someone coming towards you, and it's Jesus. And with a big smile on his face, you fall to your knees in worship, and he pulls you up and embraces you. At last, you're with the person you were made for, in the place you were made to be. Everywhere you go, there will be new people. And new places to enjoy. New things to discover. What's that you smell? It's a feast. A party ahead. and You're invited. There's exploration and work to be done. And you can't wait to get started. So my many tribulations, we, we enter that. And the main tribulation that most of us will face in life is to figure out how to walk with someone who's really getting hit hard. May God give us the grace to do that well. Let me pray.